If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board, while Willard's getting booking the guests in the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Uh, you know, uh, many people, because they're feeling uh, the pressure from uh, affordability, whether it's food, although inflation is sitting at, what, 3.8%, a slight drop. That's good news that came out today. But uh, many are feeling a little like um, less like Santa, more like Scrooge when they, you know, come to the holiday seasons. Although, you know, I was talking to Don Fox, uh, uh, IG Private Wealth Management, and he was talking about how uh, people spending on Halloween uh, you'd think that again, because times are tough, that they're cutting back. You know, here put the bed sheet over the kid, cut the uh, circles out for eyes, and and grab the pillowcase and call it a day this year. Uh, but still, and maybe this is because of the pandemic. Uh, more and more people uh, spending lots on Halloween. However, once we get to Christmas or even travel, uh, things are going to uh, scale back just a little bit, which is exactly what the government is trying to do by raising interest rates, or the Bank of Canada, I should say. And, you know, who knows, perhaps with the inflation rate uh, down very slightly at 3.8%, uh, maybe, uh, maybe they'll just decide to hold things uh, where they are. Uh, Christia Freeland uh, out in front of this today, because, you know, the federal uh, liberals have a communications problem, apparently. It's not that you don't like them anymore. It's just you're not understanding the message. And, of course, taking credit for uh, whatever has happened with the grocery prices stabilizing, although the grocery prices stabilize every single fall as they freeze prices uh, from their suppliers going into the Christmas season. This is typical business. Uh, uh, management, I guess. So, uh, it'll be interesting to see, uh, at the end, um, whether that changes any opinion for you or not. Also, uh, the Ford government censuring or trying to the NDP MPP Sarah Jama, uh, Ontario uh, legislature wants an apology and from Queens Park. We're going to talk about that. Uh, the NDP still pretty mum on all of this. Uh, I guess trying to wait till things die down a little bit. Uh, that being said, uh, many are questioning the extremism and the protests, the uh, protesters that are within the uh, NDP. NDP umbrella and asking whether they're capable of governance or just protesting. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, the federal government and the Ontario government is putting nearly a billion bucks into electric vehicle uh, component plants and such. And we always hear, and we don't hear this so much from uh, the prime minister because this is probably his his wheelhouse but we certainly hear it from doug ford that they want to get the ring of fire fired up so they've got every ounce every end of this uh manufacturing and assembling a situation for electric vehicles not buying uh Shipping our, all our raw materials to China and then buying the components back from them. And then, uh, you know, out with that goes the jobs and everything else and the revenue that comes from it. So, uh, are we getting bang for our buck on all of this? Many have asked questions, but uh, I've often said, 
Canadians are so sensitive to the environment, and rightly so, that anything you wave in front of their face regarding the environment, the wallets come out, and they're just willing to pay for it. And we've seen that over time. And it's not just till recently that opinion is starting to change, and people are asking, wait a sec, is this actually helping the environment as Canada spews out less than 1.5% of the world's greenhouse gases? Or is this just a revenue stream for the Liberals, and it has been for decades since the McGinty provincial liberals uh, were doing all of this. So, and, you know, we know where that got us. No more building, no more building. And here we are 25 years later with a housing shortage. So it's going to be fascinating to see how everyone squares this circle or even the reinforcement of the electrification and the transformation that needs to be done and stabilizing all of this with little green natural or Canadian liquid natural gas plants. So this is a lot more complex than what people think and you know everything's well i just plug it into my little thing here and off we go well yeah but you need the system in order to uh to sustain all of that also uh the chinese president and uh, the russian president are meeting this week that can only mean good news can it we'll talk about that coming up uh, a little later on as well and here's the odd thing the supreme court of canada i think it was last week uh, said and struck down um the federal government's one of the federal government's environmental policies saying that it was overreaching and uh well it's just um it's not constitutionally sound so it was struck down uh, that the government overstepped its constitutional bounds with one of, it, of its own existing environmental laws. So with word from that, um, it looks like the federal government is not going to agree with that and just move forward with these new regulations. So we'll talk about that coming up throughout the uh, latter part of the show. We certainly hear and know and are feeling and living the realities of where we are with uh, inflationary pressures and affordability, trying to put uh, groceries on the table, trying to keep a roof over the head, and let alone anything else that, you know, the stress of of leading life and such, uh, living life. Um, but does that, has that changed your spending habits? Um, it, it looks now, obviously, it is because, you know, we're coming out of a global pandemic. People thought it was going to be the roaring 20s and it was like opening up uh, the barn door and we're all running uh, out in, you know, naked into the daisies and it was going to be the best in, in I guess it was for a few months and then reality hit and, uh, and now all of a sudden we are where we are and we're faced with these huge financial challenges. What does that mean for the holiday season beyond Halloween? Like uh, Christmas and such, because not only is it what you're spending, but there's a lot of businesses, especially local businesses, that rely on that season just to get through the year. Uh, so let's bring in Marty Weintraub, National Retail Leader with Deloitte, uh, and see what the Christmas season will be like. Marty, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Pleasure. Hope you are as well. So, Marty, obviously, you know, we've been trapped or we're trapped within a global pandemic for two to three years. Then the door swung open. We started to spend. Now we're pulling it all back in. Are we going to see uh, the realities of that this holiday season? Unfortunately, we are. Uh, we just finished our uh, latest research into the holiday outlook, and it looks like Canadians are saying they're going to spend about 11% less than they did last year, which is about $1,347. What's the rippling effect of that? Uh, there's quite a few ripple effects. I mean, number one, obviously, there's likely fewer, less expensive gifts to be given. So fewer people are going to get gifts. That's according to Canadians. They're going to 
sort of buy fewer gifts and only get absolutely what they need versus what they want for their family. You know, unfortunately, one of the casualties of the reduced spend is also what we call charitable giving. That's usually a big deal at holiday season. A lot of mm. organizations run fundraising drives. Uh, charity donations are going to drop by about 40% this year over last year, again, according to what Canadians told us in our survey. So, you know, whether you're a retailer and expecting less money coming through the till or you're a charitable organization and expecting money to come in during this key time of the year, that's going to be less overall, as your intro suggested. We're feeling very, very pinched. Um, we remembered, as I was mentioning, you know, post-COVID, uh, we couldn't wait to get out, couldn't wait to travel. Uh, people were going everywhere. Uh, that has rebounded now, hasn't it? Are, we're seeing the result of that or, or the what happens after. Yeah, the one category, aside from the 11% drop, where we're seeing a little bit of sunshine is, and it is bucking the trend, is travel. So travel looks like it may be up about 11% over last year. There was one caution to that, though, Scott, which is if you've tried to book a, a flight or a travel plans lately, I'm sure you will have noticed inflation uh, has not left that sector untouched. So vacations yeah. and travel equally are more expensive. So although overall people are going to spend 11% more on travel, let's not kid ourselves. Some of that increased spend is simply because it's more expensive. And, you know, we see that with the restaurant industry, too. I mean, we couldn't get back, wait to get back out and help them after, you know, a couple of years of takeout and door-to-door, door-step stuff and all of that. And now people are really starting to notice, hey, my favorite local restaurant, the prices have really jumped. Yeah. In fact, the number happens to be the same. Uh, it's 11%, but down, actually, uh, in dining out over the holiday season. So that's one of the things we ask about when we break down the spend. And so people are also planning to eat out less and spend less eating out for the exact same reason. How do we adapt knowing we're going to come into a season where we got to, you know, you got to pinch the pennies, you got to tighten the straps. What do we do? What's the first to go? Yeah. So I think obviously anything that's not considered a need. So anything that's sort of not what we barely need, you know, to live, think about food, clothing, uh, paying for rent, education, stuff like that, I think that's going to that's gonna still stay. I think people still want to give gifts. Obviously, they're still, call it $1,350 or so, going to be spent. I think what shoppers, you know, from an advice perspective is, obviously have a plan. You know, know what your budget is, stick within it. Know, you know, basic financial planning, one-on-one, so to speak, and be very strategic about who you plan on buying gifts to. So if you're going to buy fewer gifts and less expensive gifts, then be very, you know, selective over who you really want to to gift to and uh you know the others may have to wait till next year uh we all know that small business gets hit hard uh the most by all of this how do they prepare how how do they adapt and are we just assuming there'll be low selection this year because of the what appears to be a low demand yeah i don't think selection will necessarily suffer i think there's a couple of things that small businesses can do obviously number one in this context is be very very sharp on your pricing and your promotions obviously if you're a local uh business you know competing is a very competitive it'll be a very competitive marketplace i mean 77 percent of canadians are saying they're going to shop around for the best possible deal so if you're a local business make sure you are sharp on price and deals so you have a, a first opportunity to capture that shopper's dollar you know know what your competitors are doing around the corner whether they're big or small just so you don't get caught off guard with what somebody across the street might be doing to attract traffic or or close a sale and make sure that uh, your staff whether it's you know one person operation or a hundred person operation in the store make sure your st- store staff are ready and your products on the shelf not in the back room be ready for business 
What about Halloween? Is it going to feel the same crunch? Uh, I would say, so our study didn't cover Halloween specifically, but I think you can assume just that same penny-pinching mentality. So, you know, I myself have thought about, you know, how much one will spend on candy. It's amazing. I think I, I counted one year last year. I think we had about 1,100 kids come through my door. That adds up quite a bit. So candy is also not an insignificant expense. So I suspect they'll be crunching down on how much that, uh, how much it gets unleashed in Halloween as well. And, you know, instead of buying two boxes, one for the kids and one for you, you'll maybe look at the waistline and reconsider that. Uh, Marty Weintraub with us, National Retail Leader with Deloitte uh, and the holiday season that's coming up soon. Most will probably be spending less. Marty, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. A Canadian uh, surveillance flight enforcing North Korea sanctions was intercepted by Chinese fighter jets on Monday, uh, drawing uh, criticism from Defense Minister Bill Blair. Uh, The interaction, unfortunately, that took place very recently is one that was not professional and safe, he said. The actions of the Chinese military in these circumstances, I think, was unacceptable, put our aircraft and their mission at significant risk. Chinese officials are accusing Canada of spreading disinformation, jeopardizing uh, China's national sovereignty and security. Uh, the video, I guess, kind of speaks for itself. Let's bring in Christian Leprac, professor both the Royal Military College of Canada, Queen's University fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Uh, Christian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. You bet. Good afternoon. So, Christian, in your mind, in your eyes, what exactly happened here? We've seen the video, and my, that's a little too close for comfort, uh, I think, by anybody's standards. What happened here? Well, I mean, this is the usual sort of Chinese hypocrisy. Uh, I mean, these are, uh, this this particular island, the group of islands, Senkaku Islands, um, have been agreed upon to be administered by Japan um, and uh, China simply unilaterally has decided to completely abrogate international recognition, international law, and decide that these these islands are effectively its own. Now, these are uninhabited islands, uh, but uh, they are fairly close to Taiwan. And of course, we know that uh, China is trying to claim anything and everything um, within uh, uh, in, in, in sort of a, a perimeter that is not recognized by anyone other than China. Uh, and it's precisely these sorts of imaginary claims that uh, upset international um, and regional stability. If you look at Ukraine, where, of course, you know, it's it's funny that, you know, countries such as China that were colonized in the past are now effectively engaging in neocolonialism by claiming all sorts of lands that uh, nobody in the in the world recognizes as theirs. Well, was Canada in the wrong? Was it where it was not supposed to be? What was it doing there? I, I understand enforcing North Korea sanctions. Um, uh, what does that mean? No, uh, not at all. Uh, Canada was in, in, uh, in international airspace. Canada conducted itself professionally. And basically what you see here is the same as what you see at sea with frigates, when, for instance, Canadian frigates uh, uh, and, and other allied and partner frigates uh, sail through the Taiwan Strait, uh, that they're being actively harassed uh, by Chinese military assets. Um, and so uh, this is really about Canada helping allies and partners in the region uh, assert, on the one hand, international law, and on the other hand, defend the interests of our allies and partners, in in this particular case, uh, Japan, but of course, uh, also Taiwan, and preserving the status quo uh, over over unilateral claims by China. And this is part of the international effort uh, to contain uh, not just Chinese expansionism, but also wild unilateral uh, assertions uh, by China uh, territorial assertions 
and we learned in the past that not uh, having been aggressive enough uh, in asserting um, international law here uh, has gotten the Western community to the point where it is. So um, this is Canada, I think, showing um, not just asserting Canadian interests, uh, but also showing our partners and allies in the region that Canada is a player in the Indo-Pacific, because, of course, there's been long-standing complaints that Canada has been largely missing in action in terms of uh, issues in the Indo-Pacific that uh, are of close concern to our closest allies and partners there. So what do you do when this happens, Christian? Do you, is it tit for tat? Let's go in and buzz them in their space. Um, uh, because we've talked before. I mean, it, doing this sort of maneuver at this, with this, at this speed with these aircraft is, is really, really dangerous. So what do you do when this happens? How do you, cause obviously this is, you know, they're trying to intimidate you, whatever. Who cares about that? Reality is reality. So how do you react to it? Well, I mean, these are extremely dangerous and unprofessional maneuvers by China. Um, They're dangerous insofar as the difference between China and Russia is that during the Cold War, we established deconfliction protocols with the Soviet Union. These are still in place. And so while Russia engages in some unprofessional behavior as well, um, there is a way that if something goes wrong, that we can actually communicate with the Russians. There are no such uh, protocols with China. So if something goes wrong here, there is a a very high risk of both sides either misinterpreting or miscalculating uh, what what transpired. And China has resisted putting in place uh, such deconfliction protocols. So very much you have to rely on the professionalism and the experience of our pilots. But of course, it also reinforces that the government is asking the Royal Canadian Air Force to do some uh, missions that can be quite dangerous for our personnel. And the government is sending our personnel into these missions with equipment that in many cases is not really suitable for the task hmm. um, that the Royal Canadian Air Force has been has been given. And so the government really needs to think about how it's going to align our regional and international interests by ensuring uh, that um, the Canadian Armed Forces, and in particular the Air Force, actually have the equipment they need in order to ensure that even under very trying circumstances, uh, they can withstand the sort of unprofessionalism uh, from hostile powers such as China. How do allies view this? Uh, so uh, I guess that depends on which allies you're looking at here. Uh, For example, so how, would, how would the U.S. or the U.K. look at this? Like, oh, they're buzzing Canadian planes again. Uh, so they're, of course, subject to the same sort of behavior. The problem is that uh, we know that China tends to pick uh, disproportionately on countries uh, that are 15% of its economy or less. That is to say, China likes right. to intimidate smaller countries. And of course, in the case of Canada, uh, China has a particular interest in rubbing us the wrong way. Um, and so this is China, I think, just stepping up the uh, the pressure here on Canada. And so that's why it's particularly important for Canada uh, to demonstrate resolve here, um, uh, the government would know that uh, our assets would be at disproportionately high risk um, of being harassed uh, by China. Uh, but it also shows that allies, uh, we don't have enough assets in the region. And so this is a way of making sure that uh, we hmm. distribute some of the burden among the assets and the allies that we have in the region. And so this is Canada um, doing its share with the capabilities and equipment that it has and our pilots um, demonstrating uh, the uh, extensive training and professionalism 
uh, that uh, that they have received, and this is why Canada is prepared to undergo these types of missions where many of our allies and partners uh, cannot because uh, they don't have the experience in the, in the, so the professional experience that Canada and only a small handful of allies do have. I'm going to ask you a stupid question here. Um, Chinese officials are accusing Canada of spreading disinformation, jeopardizing China's national sovereignty and security. All of this stuff is is on video. Uh, I'm sure with radar, they know exactly where they are and exactly which international or open waters, what have you, that they're in. So how can you say, well, it didn't happen or someone's spreading disinformation? It's kind of up there for everybody to see, is it not? Now, anytime China talks about anybody spreading disinformation, uh, I might think it's, it's, of course, a farcical for China to make this claim. This is a country that highly controls its own information environment uh, and systematically uh, spews propaganda uh, among its own citizens and systematically distorts um, news uh, and, uh, and, and narratives across the world in order to fit its image. So this is hardly a country that is in any position to make any more claims uh, about uh, spreading disinformation. Um, what China is trying to demonstrate here, I think, is primarily for nationalist purposes, uh, for its own domestic audience, that, uh, that Chinese citizens sort of can feel proud about uh, the claims that China makes. Uh, but uh, but in practice, of course, uh, you know, it, it shows the hypocrisy that we are subject to uh, and how difficult uh, the world is with countries such as China and uh, uh, that in Canada, we need to be prepared for more of these types of challenging missions for the Canadian Armed Forces. Uh, and yet the government's response is to cut a billion dollars off the budget uh, hmm. of the Canadian Armed Forces. That's a whole other discussion. Christian Leprecht with us, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University, fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, uh, Chinese uh, fighter jets buzzing uh, Canadian surveillance flights. Christian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. It's been my pleasure. All right, we talked about this um, last week, and, and uh, the NDP leader, Merritt Stiles, made a comment and basically said that she had talked to her MPP and that uh, all was well, but uh, this situation has happened several times for NDP MPP Sarah Jama, who has said some things uh, in regard to the Hamas attack on Israel uh, that have been pretty controversial. Uh, you know, I'll leave it at that. So uh, anyway, um, it, it uh, although Sarah Jama apologized for upsetting people, I believe the post was still up. And there doesn't seem to be any repercussion for this. Many are questioning uh, the extremism of the NDP and whether as a party they can uh, govern or manage or if it's just an extreme party of, of protesters. In the wake of all of this, the Ontario government, uh, the Conservative government, has censured NDP MPP Sarah Jama. And, and unless she apologizes, that will continue. What does that mean? How, how does that affect the MPP? Let's bring in Sabrina Nanji, founder of uh, Queen's Park Observer and here now. Sabrina, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, thanks for having me, Scott. So what does this mean for Sarah Jama? Uh, as you said, it's not good. This, uh, you know, just isn't going away for the NDP as much as they would like all of the heat to be on for government and the Conservatives right now, uh, you know, not least because the RCMP, sort of around the same time the JAMA drama was exploding, announced their full-on investigation into the, the government's Greenbelt land swap. But as, as you said, you know, 
the the conservatives have sort of dumped gasoline on this fire for the new Democrats and have tabled a motion now that would essentially mean that, you know, JAMA is not allowed to speak in the House. She can't ask questions to the government uh, in question period. She won't be able to speak to debate, make statements, that sort of thing. She won't be recognized at all by the speaker unless she apologizes to the legislature for these comments and deletes her statement on social media. Um, You know, the conservatives, as we know, have a whopping majority at Queen's Park. And so, you know, barring anything surprising, this, this will likely pass in the house. Uh, And, you know, it's a, it's a huge drastic move. Um, You know, obviously, regardless of whatever your stance is on the Hamas Israel conflict, I mean, you know, uh, not having an elected official speak for Hamilton Center is, is just devastating to the NDP. And we know this is a strong seat for them. So I do think that, you know, this is a welcome distraction from everything the Ford government has been dealing with. And it's sort of morphed into this test of new-ish NDP leader, Mart Stiles' leadership. So now it is a distraction for the NDP. Why is Merritt Stiles not dealing with this? It's not like this is a first offense. Uh, many groups have pointed to this on several occasions. Uh, why is why is the NDP leader just not nipping this in the bud? Yeah, that's definitely a good question and and one that's been floating around Queens Park. Uh, you know, the premier had put out a statement saying that he's going to do what Merritt Stiles uh, won't and, you know, call out JAMA to, to resign. And that's what he did last week. We, I'm even hearing that the Liberals will be supporting this motion uh, in the House. And, you know, it, it's interesting because JAMA, as you said, has landed in hot water before for these comments uh, that sort of surfaced around the by-election to replace Andrea Horvath. JAMA was, um, you know, a candidate from the Horvath days. So she wasn't necessarily handpicked by Marit Stiles to, to run, but, you know, Marit mm-hmm. Stiles sort of in, inherited this as the leader. And so you're right. I, I think, you know, asking your MPP to apologize uh, in a very public, tense, 24-hour standoff and retract the statement, I think to a lot of people that means, you know, delete the comment and it's still up. And so I think that a lot of people uh, in the NDP caucus are really upset about this. They're not only upset with Sarah Jama, they're upset with Marit Stiles for her handling of this, because as you said, you know, the PCs are just sort of milking this and capitalizing on this um, political gas that's happening. And now the liberals will support them on that, which even speaks a higher volume. Are are they doing this for votes? Like, where's the advantage here? What's the advantage to doing this? I mean, certainly, you know, when it comes to optics, it's not a great look. Um, you know, debating this motion in the House will just add more more fuel to the fire around JAMA. It's sort of like political clickbait, as we as we like to say. Um, you know, the Liberals have called for JAMA to resign. Um, I'm hearing rumors that they are going to be supporting the motion, but nothing's set in stone yet. We don't really we don't know when it'll actually go for debate, but it still just gives the headlines, uh, more negative headlines that the NDP obviously don't want to be dealing with right now. It's sort of putting them in this impossible situation. Um, and, you know, if it passes, Sarah Jama could really lose a lot of the power that a politician, like basically the reason why they're elected, right? You go mm-hmm. to the House to speak for your constituents and Sarah Jama will no longer have this. So this is really has put, uh, you know, the new Democrats in a really tough position at Queen's Park.
And seems to almost trivialize the issue by, you know, um, treating it so lighthandedly. Uh, Sabrina Nanji with us, founder of Queen's Park Observer, talking about NDP MPP Sarah Jemma, her comments and being censured in uh, the legislature. Sabrina, thank you so much for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks for having me. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Uh, We've talked at length about how the uh, Canadian Ontario auto industry is transitioning. Lots of announcements of late uh, in regard to deals with companies and provincial and federal governments uh, to building uh, electric vehicle facilities. We have another one. The federal and Ontario government's putting nearly $1 billion into a electric vehicle battery component plant, which will be based in eastern Ontario. Uh, this will build cathode, uh, cathode active materials uh, and precursor cathode active materials. What does that all mean? Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, professor, DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm fine. I'll just put down these cathode active materials when I talk to you. <laughs> That's right. Make sure you got those big Homer Simpson gloves on so you don't exactly. electrocute yourself or anything. All right. We, we certainly know when this all started, we didn't want to just be assembling. We wanted to be part of the production of the components or even batteries and, and even a, a ring of fire that will bring the, the materials in. What will this plan actually do? Right. Well, first, this has nothing to do with the ring of fire, and it's not really taking advantage of those kinds of materials that are way up in northern Ontario. This is a plant that will be located in eastern Ontario, and what they're doing is producing materials that then go into the batteries. You'll recall that Stellantis is building a battery factory in Windsor. You'll also recall that there's a Volkswagen battery facility going into the St. Thomas area. These two companies would then buy the materials they need to make batteries from this company. It's called Umacor. I'm not familiar with it, but it's a a Belgian company that is building its biggest plant ever in North America uh, to do this in the eastern townships. So uh, this, what's interesting here is we wouldn't have got this plant if we didn't have the first two plants. So you can actually say these are Mm. spin-off benefits of the investments in Stellantis and Volkswagen. So these are raw materials that will come through Belgium. Uh, well, no, <laughs> most likely they'll source them from anywhere in the world. Bring them no, but I mean, I mean, I mean, the, I mean the plant, like where the, the organization they buy them from around the world and ship them to this plant. Right, that's right. Yeah. And uh, the plant itself, the company itself, is based in Belgium. They have other plants around the world, but this is their biggest investment, only investment in Canada, and I think their biggest in North America. And it's coming to Ontario. So this is the kind of good news you wanted, but it also is an interesting exercise in the investments involved. So the total. Investment in this plant is around two and three quarters billion dollars. Of the two and three quarters billion, roughly one billion is coming from Ontario and the federal government. And out of this, we're going to get 600 jobs. So you can start to do the math and say, well, boy, that's kind of a lot of money per job. And the reason, of course, is this is high technology. So the biggest expense here is is not building, I don't know, a big empty building, but it's going to be all the robotics and high technology that goes in to assemble these things. You were making a joke about Homer Simpson, but it's, it's not that far away to say that it will look a bit like a nuclear power plant inside. Um, lots of good paying jobs, high technology jobs, but also lots of technology to make it all happen. Uh, where do the raw materials come that this Belgian company would source? Where do they source them from? 
Yeah, and it's going to depend upon what it is. So, for instance, if they need steel, and steel is a part of these batteries, likely it will come from the greater Hamilton area. Both Stelco and DeFasco would be capable of providing that. They're going to need nickel. Well, there are plants in northern Ontario that will provide nickel. But for things like the lithium, at this point, we don't have a Canadian domestic source for lithium. There are talks of having such a facility in either Quebec or in Saskatchewan, whether it'll be done, this plant is going to open in 2026. So it'll, you know, two or three years from now, the world can change. But things like the lithium it needs might come from some other places. But they'll get their materials wherever they need it in the world and then put it all together and make magic happen. Uh, many critical when these announcements were first made about a year ago or such, a huge expense. And as you said, the amount or the cost per job was was huge. But now we're starting to see that spinoff. Does that make it work uh, worth it? Is this something that will grow? Yeah, I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say yes for two reasons. One is your last point, that whether anyone likes it or not, electric vehicles are coming and they're going to come and stay. And so if we are going to have a relevant auto industry, we have to embrace electric vehicles and the batteries that operate in those. And so if you are the government, you have two choices. You can say, no, 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 I only want to do internal combustion engines, in which you're going to then doom yourself and your industry to obsolescence, or you embrace the new technology. But, but the other thing here, again, is this idea of a critical mass. The more you do, the more you do. So as you have more of these plants coming here, then someone else who's thinking of investing in this kind of an industry is going to say, well, look, they've got a, a critical mass there. They've got uh, you know, a, a think tank, if you will, or a lot of clever brains and companies. Let's join them. It's a bit like Silicon Valley in northern, Quebec, mm. uh, northern California. The more you have those companies, the more other companies want to be there. And that's now what is starting to happen here in Ontario. Will this encourage development of the Ring of Fire? We many know mining is as evasive as as harvesting fossil fuel. Um, so, will we see this? Does this encourage the development of the Ring of Fire? Yeah. So, I'm going to be cagey here, Scott. Hopefully, I hope you don't buy. I'm going to say it doesn't discourage it, but there are just so many challenges to developing the Ring of Fire. Not the least of which is just how do you get equipment up there? We don't have a road infrastructure. We don't have those kinds of things in this part of northern Ontario. We also need to involve the First Nations people. It is a very, very complicated thing to do. Now. If I was a Doug Ford, I would be so encouraged by this, I would probably move this up on my agenda and try to make things happen faster. But even if I do try to make it happen faster, I think you're looking at least 10, 15, 20 years down the road. It's just, it's a wonderful concept, but it isn't much beyond a concept at this point. Will that concept only become more attractive as as time goes by? I'm going to say yes. I think, again, the future is more of this kind of technology. So whether it's batteries and cars or whatever the next rounds of technologies are, they're going to need some of these rarer elements that are available in northern Ontario. So there will be a need to, or at least a, a good consideration to develop the area, but it requires... Uh, uh, a fortitude within the government that we've not seen over the last 20 years. Whether you're talking about Dalton McGinty or Kathleen Wynne or even Doug Ford, they've all talked a good game about the Ring of Fire, but they haven't really done anything. Now we got to get them to get, get moving on it. Marvin Ryder, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University, Federal and Ontario government's putting uh, nearly a billion dollars into a vehicle battery component plan. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you. A quick break here. We're coming right back. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, kind of frightening headline in the Globe and, in the Globe and Mail. Uh, China's Xi to meet Putin, other allies to advance his vision for a new global order. Uh, Ten years ago, the Chinese president first proposed what would become the Belt and Road Initiative, a globe-spanning trade and infrastructure program that now encompasses more than 150 countries. World leaders are gathering in Beijing this week to hear of China's vision for the future of the project, which has come under growing criticism for failing to deliver on its grand promise, uh, promises and saddling poor countries with yet more debt, uh, debt and acting as a tool for Chinese political interference. To talk more about all of this, Elliot Tepper with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Elliot, as always, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you. Same to you, Scott. So basically, Elliot, explain in, in layperson's terms what the Belt and Road Initiative is, and is it not the Chinese government building infrastructure in other countries which they really can't afford and then just taking it over? Well, that pretty well sums it up. <laughs> it's actually a very, very ambitious program. If you take a look at the map of what they have in mind, it stretches all the way to Europe and down into Africa, and particularly an economic corridor through Pakistan. Very, very ambitious uh, overland across the seas, and it was indeed intended to be a, a, a an initiative, a good initiative by China to show what good people they are by providing loans to uh, finance all kinds of infrastructure projects, and those have been very valuable projects for a lot of places. However, uh, now after a decade, we're starting to see more of the outcome of all this. Uh, the short phrase on this is that China has gone from the world's largest lender to the world's largest debtor, debt collector. Mm-hmm. So the, a lot of countries just can't, can't pay back the uh, loans, even soft loans that were provided. And yes, uh, in some places, China then sweeps in and takes over, as they did in Sri Lanka, a very strategic, a very strategic base that they built there, a deep water port that they built there. So yes, it has been a an ambitious program basically to see to it literally that all roads lead through Beijing. So is it working or is it bankrupting bankrupting China? No, it's not bankrupting China because they, uh, <laughs> they, can, they have a funny money economy in a sense. But it, mm. it is very, it's increasingly difficult for China now that China is at home uh, internally facing a lot of economic issues. We know that the post-COVID bounce that was expected hasn't happened. The collapse or the collapsing real estate uh, uh, sector within China is a real threat to the economy. They may not have the money to loan out that they have in the past. They are paralleling all of this with some other additional uh, programs, basically World Bank type programs, uh, infrastructure loaning uh, programs. But uh, the bottom line is that a lot of countries have become disillusioned by the BRI because Chinese companies come in. They don't hire locals. They bring in Hmm. Chinese companies. And then they build a project and go home without necessarily having the maintenance there. Otherwise, it gets tied into Chinese maintenance. So there's a lot of complaints that then after, as you pointed out, there's something called the debt trap. Countries can't pay back, and then they have to uh, basically give up ownership of a piece of their country in order to make it all happen. What is the West learn? The Western allies learning from this? Is this something they should have been involved in, or be just different set of politics, different ideologies? Well, uh, Joe Biden has set up an alternative, parallel 
much improved, as they say. You know, we, we're not going to be like the Chinese. You can deal with us. But in fact, uh, very belatedly, only in recent times, Joe Biden has set up this parallel program so that countries now of increasing political significance, which are falling under uh, Chinese influence, countries in Africa that have enormous resources are being tied uh, to the future of China, not uh, to the future of the Western alliance and so to, uh, and their allies. So, uh, yes, there's now a, a catch-up going on. Uh, we'll, we'll loan you money. No, we'll loan you money. So it's a, in a good position for countries that need to get things underway. Again, I want to say something positive about it because, in fact, a lot of modernization has taken place. The Xi Jinping yeah. says countries uh, are voting with their feet. There's 130 of them here today. So they, they've made their choices. And the West is, uh, is being very unfair to us. They have other kinds of programs that also create debt. But essentially, this is a huge power play that China is undertaking. Uh, Mr. Putin is there to say, we're part of it. We back you all the way. He's there to strengthen the relationship that these two have in their combined effort to reshape the global order away from the old declining Western model into a new emerging model, i.e. an autocratic model, with China taking the lead. Is this set in stone, uh, China on the way to creating the new world order, or have allies just been asleep at the wheel and now they're waking up and won't let that happen? It's a, a bit of both. The, the allies are waking up, but there's also a lot of awakening that the BRI is not not to be all and end all uh, that it was thought to be by the people who actually take these loans. So there's a lot of a lot of um, country complaints coming out of this. Some of the work has been shoddy as well, and also now they're shifting uh, at this forum. They're now going to be shifting from the type of infrastructure that they have been funding, large scale infrastructure to smaller scale and perhaps money making infrastructure and also more environmentally sound infrastructure because China has been not only building coal plants at home, they've been paying under this program for other countries to invest in coal plants. Now they're saying, we're not going to do that anymore. We're we're going to, as of this meeting, uh, we're going to now have a clean uh, Silk Road, a a Belt and Road. It's amazing how how one meeting can do that, Elliot. From now on, here's how we're doing it. (laughs) Well, if you switch where the money goes, it might help. But all of this, if you step back, this is a big power play. Um, an emerging power wants to uh, wants to build up very long-term dependencies around the world in ways that benefit the emerging power. Uh, and here comes Mr. Putin to say, well, we're with you on this, clearly as a junior partner. But the relationship between Mr. Putin and China has really changed dramatically as a result of his failed imperial adventure in in Ukraine. He thought it was just going to be a very quick victory. As we know, we've talked about this many times. But what's happened now is that because of the pressures put on Russia, because of their, their basically their criminal behavior in terms of attacking a neighboring state, China has moved in to fill the gap. So a lot of companies moved out of uh, doing business with Russia. China moved right on in. Uh, I've got some figures. Trade between China and Russia has grown 30% in the first nine months of this year. Total business in 2023 expected to break last year's record $190 billion. And very importantly, I, I, this one surprised me. I hadn't picked it up. The Western company's departure from the Russian market has been filled by China, including in cars. Uh, one of every two cars 
I'm reading again. This is a quote. One of every two cars sold in Russia today, for example, comes from China. Before the war, it was hardly anything. Elliot Tepper with us, Emeritus Professor, Political Science, Carleton University, uh, Russian leadership and Chinese leadership meeting, uh, getting together in Beijing, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative on the agenda. Elliot, as always, fascinating stuff. Thanks for the time. Be well. Uh, Good to talk to you, Scott. We talked about this last week. Uh, Ottawa, uh, the Supreme Court of uh, Canada, has uh, struck down a environmental policy which the Canadian government was imposing on the provinces. Now, Ottawa has announced it's going to press forward with a pair of contentious new regulations uh, anyway, despite last Friday's Supreme Court of Canada decision. How do you do that? Why would you do that? Let's bring in Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, and he is with us now. Dan, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thanks for having me, Scott. So uh, what was overturned by the Supreme Court? What, what, what exactly happened last week? The impact statement that the federal government had uh, put into place in 2019, basically saying if you want to build a pipeline in this country, you have to follow the uh, Uh, more than just approval on uh, merit, you have to also satisfy a number of criteria. Uh, Much of that criteria having nothing to do with pipelines, it has to do with uh, virtue signaling, uh, you know, uh, equality issues, uh, things that uh, you'd normally expect in a court of law, but not in terms of the building of infrastructure. And so uh, the impact assessment uh, was rigorous and uh, Rightly dubbed is the uh, No More Pipelines Built in Canada bill. Of course, it came at a time which Canada may have already had the ability to, you know, build Northern Gateway and uh, uh, the uh, the Energy East pipeline uh, would have already been built. Of course, that would have given the world two million barrels of oil that's short of today. One uh, has to think very carefully as to whether Canada, the third largest provable oil reserves, and of course, I'm even mentioning natural gas where we had 18 projects of which one is still to be built. All these things would have certainly had uh, an, a, an effect on uh, geopolitics and, of course, on raising the standard of living for Canadians. But the government uh, thought that this was uh, uh, unassailable. Uh, it was challenged by the provinces. The provinces won, and the, uh, the law was effectively uh, amended. So, so why is the Trudeau government ignoring the Supreme Court ruling? Like, how, how do you do that? What happens now? Well, they're going to have to come by in a way that uh, doesn't infringe on, ter- on, on provincial jurisdiction, uh, the division of powers. Um, kind of a tough thing to do. They think they can still do it while keeping, uh, in essence, what uh, Stephen Guibault uh, Guibo wants to do, which is to prevent any pipelines from being built. Uh, this is not new for Mr. Guibault. He has a long history of trying to shut down Canadian pipelines, uh, prevent Canadians from having cars. Uh, you know, wanting uh, Canadians not to move to suburbs. There's a whole litany of stuff about this guy. Hmm. His, uh, original, uh, you know, his his mission, which we only know is the guy with the orange jumpsuit who tried to scale the CN Tower and, of course, uh, uh, you know, unfurl a banner in the house of the former premier of Alberta, scaring his wife to death. But that aside, we know that he's convinced that he has to do this and shut down the Canadian oil uh, industry and, uh, and gas sector. And, of course, uh, without taking into account... Uh, that's all nice, but if you do that, um, you know, Mr. Gibo, the Liberals and the NDP support this along with the Greens. Uh, who's going to come up with the $30 billion to pay for the $46.5 billion deficit you've just incurred this year? At the end of the day, uh, it is a significant 
uh, attempt at uh, a game of chicken, the likes of which are continuing to hit Canadians when it comes to affordability. Uh, is this more smoke and mirrors, more death by delay? Um, I'll leave it at that for now. Well, I, I, they're going to try to do something. Um, but I think the clock, the, the fans and the clock are, are running down for the, for the Liberals and their NDP coalition. Um, we could see an election very soon, or we're going to see one in no more than 22 and a half, three or 23 months. Either way, um, it's pretty clear that the federal government uh, overreached, overstepped. And uh, there are people, of course, who are going to say this is not a bad decision. We can work with it. We can, we can get around it. We can still block pipelines. I think Canadians increasingly are starting to say, as they look at their paychecks shrinking that, uh, and their inability to make ends meet, that uh, for a country like Canada, uh, that could be you know, the, the, the salvation of the world and, and prevent wars uh, and prevent people like Vladimir Putin from using oil to finance his campaign against uh, Ukraine. And have Iran, with only 3 million barrels, being able to hold the world at bay or having Biden going down in bed and D to Venezuela, asking them, uh, you know, a shifty, you know, very shady uh, country for more oil that Canada could have provided. I think it's all coming to a head, Scott. And uh, I think Canadians are decidedly, and you're seeing in the polling, they've had enough of the status quo and the Stefan Gibos of this world, uh, who as activists are trying to destroy this country and its ability to make ends meet. I've said this a lot that the the liberals are using this or the left or the extreme lefts are using this as a way to generate revenue. And obviously, if they're not generating revenue through the sale of energy, they've got to generate it some other way. I think McGinty started this in the province way back when, 20 years ago. Is this just become such a solid revenue generator, meaning taxes, carbon tax, whatever, that they just can't walk away from it? Oh, I think they can walk away from it, build another pipeline, and you'd make a lot more money that way. But the question mm. we have to ask is, do we want Iran uh, and Venezuela and Russia producing that oil and gas, or do we want Canada? And at the end of the day, anybody who thinks you can run your, your house on, you know, on hydrogen or your, your steel plants here in Hamilton on hydrogen, I think is uh, dreaming technicolor. That's great stuff, and I think it's stuff we should, it's well worth pursuing. But it's not happening now. It's not going to happen in the next 20 to 30 years. This... Uh, this this obsession we have with the marketing scheme that I call meta-marketing scheme called net zero uh, is something that I think Canadians are going to have to start to think and pay a lot closer attention to, unless, of course, they continue to like to pay high interest rates and uh, high costs of everything uh, to uh, to maintain its benefit. Dan McTagg with us, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, uh, Ottawa, pressing through on new regulations that were struck down by the Supreme Court of Canada. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Democracy Watch has been doggedly pursuing records relating to the RCMP investigation into the SNC-Lavalin affair. And it seems like a situation is as disconcerting as ever. Um, Conclusions were arrived at with apparently not receiving all of the information. Let's bring in Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch, and here now. Duff, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, I am. Thank you. So bring us up to date here, Duff. What, what's going on here? What is this latest uh, issue? Why is this drawing attention? Well, um, the latest issue is that uh, finally the RCMP has disclosed some of the documents, less than half of their investigation records into obstruction of SNC-Lavalin prosecution by the Trudeau cabinet. And what the documents show is that the RCMP essentially rolled over like a lapdog and um, believed everything that cabinet claimed 
tried to bury the investigation with an almost two-year delay, and I'm still not refusing to disclose the legal details why no one was prosecuted and, and keeping investigation records, more than 2,000 pages, still secret, which is a violation of the federal open government law. Why would the RCMP do that? What's in it for them? Well, we don't know. And that's, we're calling for a public inquiry because, um, you know, the RCMP National Command received an initial assessment report in March of 2021 and didn't deal with it till January 2023. So they tried to bury the investigation for almost two years. So why did they delay it for almost two years? Did they communicate with anyone in the Trudeau cabinet during that time period? And you know, who exactly in the RCMP was involved in that delay decision and decision not to prosecute anyone? You know, we have several questionable actions by the former RCMP commissioner, uh, Brenda Lucky, through this time period and other situations. And I think there's serious questions to be looked at by a public inquiry with an inquiry commissioner chosen by all the party leaders, the same way the foreign interference inquiry commissioner was chosen. Why did the Prime Minister refuse to give the Mounties access to certain information if the objective is here to to solve the case? Uh, or is that all top secret, too? Another uh, difference with the foreign interference issue, where the inquiry commissioner is and even opposition party leaders are being given access to uh, records that are cabinet confidences. And so why were the, the RCMP and also the Ethics Commissioner who examined the uh, Prime Minister's actions with regard to trying to stop the SNC-Lavalin prosecution, uh, they were both uh, prohibited from looking at documents that Cabinet view as Cabinet confidences. Well, I mean, why would you let people look at them in the foreign interference area but not in this area? It seems like you have something to hide. And the RCMP rolled over again, didn't even try to go to court to try and get a search warrant to get those documents, just accepted the very restricted disclosure uh, that the Trudeau government set up and and didn't even try to do what they should have done, which is go to court and let a judge decide. Don't make these secret behind closed door decisions to roll over like a negligently weak lapdog. Uh, do you think this is because uh, the election interference scandal was obviously much bigger than the SNC-Lavalin, SNC-Lavalin, private company, whatever, whereas the election interference was more to do with uh, w- with security and, and, um, and interference, plain interference? Is that why it got more attention? Uh, I don't know, but I think a, another comparison is the Greenbelt scandal. So what happens in that situation in August? The OPP says, well, there's a perceived conflict of interest. They haven't said exactly why, but part of it, I'm guessing, is because the premier chooses the commissioner of the RCMP, or Mm -hmm. sorry, of the OPP. And so the OPP says, we're going to refer this matter to the RCMP for more independence in terms of who looks at it. The RCMP should have done that with the SNC-Lapland scandal, sent it over to the OPP, but they didn't. So then... A month and a half later, the RCMP announces an investigation publicly into the Greenbelt scandal. What did they do in the SNC-Lavalin scandal? From August 2019 until June of 2023, they said nothing. No public statements. And they always claimed it was they were just assessing it and that there was not a full investigation. Actually, they were investigating 
They just didn't want to publicly call it an investigation. It was a very superficial investigation, but investigating officers were involved in, and they were interviewing people and gathering evidence. That's an investigation. So a totally different way of dealing between, uh, between how the RCMP has dealt with the Greenbelt scandal versus the SNC Lavalin uh, Trudeau cabinet scandal. Why this so for you, just raise so, uh, question. On that point, Duff, is this for you more about how the RCMP is handling it or the obstructions that are being put up by government? Uh, both. Uh, the RCMP and, and the Greenbelt scandal hasn't yet requested cabinet confidence documents from the Ford government, as far as we know. But if Ford government says no, and the RCMP goes to court for a search warrant to get those internal communications on all the devices by, used by the premier and others, then again, that'll just be a huge difference from what they did with the SNC Lavalin scandal, where mm. they just rolled over and accepted whatever cabinet said to them, they accepted fully. They actually try and cast it in a favorable light when you look at the documents, always. Hmm. And it just looks like something happened here that smells even worse than it already smells from what's what's been made public. And we're still waiting again for more than 2,200 pages of records to be disclosed, even though we filed a request last July and the RCMP is legally required to respond to that request by last September, September 2022, not September 2023. So this, this situation smells really badly, and that's why we're calling for a public inquiry. A conservative MP, Michael Barrett, has introduced a motion at the House Ethics Committee, calling on the committee to hold four days of hearings, four sessions of hearings on this issue, and, and ask for an explanation why the RCMP was not given access to these internal cabinet mm. communication records. And we'll see whether the other parties try and block that or go ahead with it, and that'll be a great step forward because that's not a full public inquiry but at least there'll be some open public hearings about it. Jeff Conacher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch, still uh, inquiring about the SNC-Lavalin affair and the RCMP's investigation into it. Jeff, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This one from history teacher Mr. Lowe, retired. As we keep taking down historical statues and placing them in a dark and possibly secretive location is such a travesty to history. We should be educating Canadians on what these statues stood for, both positive and negative. Then, let an educated population decide on villain or hero. From a history teacher's point of view, we are in danger of ignoring our past, both the good and the bad. Mr. Lowe. Keep right, except to pass. 